Well, good morning, church family, and uh, welcome to many guests and, uh, and extended family members, college students. Wonderful to have you with us. Um, I do want to say a special welcome to Sydney, who's back from Africa. We, uh, we praise God that he has brought you back to be with us uh, for the next few weeks. It's good to worship with you. Um, and I just want to encourage you, as, as Chris has already invited us um, tonight, come back at five o'clock, uh, just a sweet time of, uh, of singing Christmas carols by candlelight, um, a, a brief um, uh, word from, from the Bible, uh, again, on, uh, on, on what does it look like to follow Jesus? Uh, what does that faith look like in the Christmas story that we see? Um, one thing that I really enjoy about the Christmas season is Christmas lights. And um, my, 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 just a week and a half ago, I was with my dad um, on, on the island of Tenerife, which is a, a part of the Canary Islands right off the coast of, of Africa. Uh, and we had just seen my brothers off on their transatlantic row. And we spent a night in this um, old town called San Cristobal de la Laguna in a hotel that was built in 1776. So uh, it was a centuries-old uh, town, and after dinner, we walked around uh, on the streets, and the Christmas lights were spectacular. I'd actually never seen anything quite like it. An old, you know, town, hundreds of years old, but I'd never seen such amazing public Christmas lights. And in fact, as we were walking by the cathedral, we, 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 we heard the sound of some, some carolers and took a little side street, and there were like 50 people singing Christmas songs in Spanish with guitars and, and one blind guy with a xylophone and, you know, their, their instruments made out of bones. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Um, but, you know, when we think of Christmas lights, I hope you'll remember that at Christmas time, we Christians have gospel light, and, and that is Christ. Uh, the light of the gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the reason for the season, and the Christmas story is, is really like a diamond. When you shine gospel light on it, you see all kinds of colors reflected in various perspectives. And so this morning as we consider these, these words that Pastor Bill just read from Matthew's gospel, I would like for us to examine different perspectives in this story of Christ's coming, of his incarnation. And so the first perspective that I invite you to consider is the, the human perspective. This was a real story that happened to real people in real time, and it's an incredibly human story. And so let's look here at Joseph's perspective as Matthew presents it to us in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, there's a lot going on in these two verses. Joseph was most likely somewhere between the ages of 18 and 20. His bride-to-be was probably somewhere between the ages of 14, 15, maybe 16 years old. Girls normally married around 14 ages, uh, uh, years of age in, in the time of, of, of Christ. Now, Joseph was in the line of David, so he had royal blood, but he wasn't a rich man. 
He was a humble carpenter living in the backwater of Nazareth. Because he was a descendant of David, we, we read in, in Luke's account that, that his ancestral home was Bethlehem, but he lived in Nazareth, which was just, just a backwater. And, and, and now he learns that his betrothed bride is pregnant. Now he does not know how, but he does know one thing, and that is he is not the father. Now Matthew tells us that Joseph was a just man. Now that, that, that's an interesting word. Uh, that's what we read in our ESV. Uh, this is a translation of the Greek word diakios, or dikaios, actually. But that word has, has a wider meaning, and it can be translated upright, or virtuous, or even righteous, as it's translated in other parts of Scripture. And what this means here is, what, what Matthew is saying to us is that Joseph is a good man. All right, you, you, may, you may, ladies, you may be right now feeling like there's not a lot of good men in this world, but Joseph was a good man, all right? This was a good guy that you could trust, and I think that we can learn from Joseph. For one, we realize here in our text that he was a loving man. His, his inclination was mercy rather than judgment. Now, betrothal in Joseph's day was a little different than engagements in our day. For one, uh, it was very normal for families to arrange marriages, so it's likely that Joseph's parents and Mary's parents had, while they were young, had uh, gotten together, uh, had a handshake agreement, and they had been pledged to one another. But about a year before um, the actual final wedding ceremony in which you would uh, live together as man and wife, there would actually be a betrothal ceremony, okay? And this was binding, and, and so while it was more binding than modern day engagements, there was still no physical contact allowed until the actual marriage ceremony that would happen a year later. Now Galilee, the region where Joseph grew up was even more conservative than Judea. So it's very likely that at this point, Mary and Joseph had spent very little time together, probably no time alone. Probably some time together with family around, but likely no time alone. So imagine Joseph's shock when he received word, which was probably from a relative, that his betrothed wife-to-be, Mary, was pregnant. Now, now it's likely this was about the fourth month of her pregnancy uh, when she would have started showing. We, We know that her first three months of pregnancy, she was with her relative Elizabeth, right? And so she returned after three months to Nazareth. Word got out, and Joseph hears that Mary is pregnant. Now, there was no other possibility in his mind than that she had been unfaithful with another man. And according to the Mosaic law, uh, 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 conceiving or, or being involved in, in sexual relations um, to someone else when you're betrothed to a man constituted adultery. And so to break off the marriage, Joseph would have had to legally divorce Mary, and she would have at the very least been subject to public shame and and ridicule. Nobody would have ever married a woman with a child who had been divorced for adultery in his culture. Once her parents died, she would have had no means of support. And so Joseph, we read here, was not willing to put her through that kind of public shame, and so he decided to try to find a way 
to end the betrothal quietly for Mary's sake. Now, let's just note for a moment here that Joseph was also a patient man. He didn't react rashly, which was very unnormal in his culture, okay? Uh, he, He didn't react rashly. In the next verse, we see that as he considered these things, he took time to think about them, I'm sure to pray about them. And I think it's, it's good for us to, to see that patience is a part of, of love. Have you, have you ever been so sure about someone's terrible sin that you prosecuted them and judged them in your mind and condemned them, and then later you found out that you totally misread the situation? Has that ever happened to you? Well, thankfully, Joseph was patient. And so, we, we, we read here, and you can imagine Joseph's relief when this angel appeared to him in a dream and put his fears to rest, but he learns that there's something much bigger going on here. And that leads us to the divine perspective, our second point this morning. The divine perspective in this story of Christ's coming. So, verse 20 tells us, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, which is probably Gabriel, we, we, we read in Luke's accounts uh, very clearly that Gabriel is the one uh, giving the announcements here, and he's also called uh, the angel of the Lord, uh, but he's given the name, so it's likely this was Gabriel, appeared to him in a dream. Now notice here, like his namesake in the Old Testament, Joseph is a dreamer. We, we spent some time months ago looking at the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and, and we know that God gave Joseph in the Old Testament this ability to interpret dreams, and in a sense, that Joseph is pointing us to the earthly father of Jesus, who four times in the chapter, first two chapters of Matthew receives guidance from God in dreams. Now, we're not going to talk all about dreams right now. We talked about that months ago, but here God very clearly spoke to Joseph through the angel of the Lord in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, and, and what, a, what, a, uh, what an amazing um, title here. I mean, normally this is reserved for Jesus, but here it's Joseph, son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now let's stop and think about that for a moment. There, there is mystery here in how God did it. The, the biological miracle of the Immaculate Conception. But what is clear in our text is that God the Holy Spirit made God the Son, who is the preexistent second person of the Trinity, into a human being. As one writer put it, the Spirit genesis Jesus. Now this is a mystery, but this is a core tenet of our Christian faith. The Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. I don't know how much you've thought about that. The miracle and the mystery of God the Spirit making God the Son who had no beginning 
fully human. It is truly mind blowing. Wayne Grudem claims that the incarnation is the most profound mystery in the universe. And when we ponder that, we think about um, the God-man, God truly taking on flesh, not just the appearance of humanity, but two natures, divine and human. We realize that Jesus was born a baby, and yet he was sustaining the universe by the word of his power. And Luke tells us that he truly grew. The King James, the New King James uses the, the, the verbiage in wisdom and in stature as a human, and yet he was omniscient. One of you can explain that one to me afterwards. We read that he got tired in his earthly ministry, and yet he was omnipotent. And we could go on with the mystery. And when we reach the end of our human bandwidth, the, time is, the, the thing to do is just to bow and worship before God and say, this is incredible. The incarnation of Jesus is indeed mind-bending but it shows us the humility and the love of God in becoming a tiny baby. Why didn't Jesus just come as a man? He could have done that, right? He could have simply descended uh, to earth, showed up as a human on the scene, figured out how to get himself crucified, which wasn't hard to do, okay, in his time and, and day, and he would have paid the price for our sins, right? So why did he choose to come as a baby and, and fr frankly, as a zygote, as a, the very, you know, in the same way that we are conceived and born, except not in the same way we're conceived, but, but as, a, as a tiny little embryo, uh, you think about that. In fact, one of the young ladies in our church, one of the children in our church were, were, was asking me about this a couple nights ago. Uh, was the baby Jesus inside of Mary, you know, the tiny, tiny little thing, was that God growing and forming? And, and, and my answer is yes, it was. And, and we know this because when, when John the Baptist, who was a bigger embryo, came into contact with a really, really, really tiny uh, 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 baby Jesus inside his pregnant mother, he leapt for joy. That is incredible. Well, why didn't he come as a man? Well, I think that there are several reasons, certainly an answer to prophecy, but also we read in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so he, he, he came through the full cycle of humanity to identify with us. And he truly understands what it's like to be tempted in every way, to struggle in every way. And so you may be struggling this morning, uh, you may be young, you may be old and struggling Today, Jesus truly does understand. And that's an important part of the Christmas story, God with us. It's not just an a intelligent knowledge, it's a knowledge based on having done it, of experience. God wasn't just simulating humanity. He actually became human through the virgin birth of Christ. Matthew tells us in our text this morning that Jesus was indeed born as a true human baby, which means that he did cry. And he nursed, and he grew in wisdom and stature. He needed sleep, and he experienced the same emotions that we experience. Spurgeon simply wrote, marvelous condescension that God should be a man. Marvelous condescension. And we need to be in awe of that condescension. We, we recognize that when celebrities will, will, will go and, and, and visit a, a hospital, 
or roll up their sleeves and serve in a soup kitchen. Why? Because that is a form of condescension and it gets our attention. Well, what we have at Christmas is marvelous condescension in Pastor Charles Spurgeon's words. And in the words of the song we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. But let's stop and and consider for a moment that the Holy Spirit did this. Okay, it was God the Holy Spirit who we might consider kind of the silent um, um, member of the Trinity, right? We, we, you know, we, we see Jesus, we can, we can imagine Jesus, we hear all these stories of Jesus, and we, we often think of God the Father when we, when we speak to God. But God the Spirit, some has, someone has called him the, the shy member of the Trinity. And yet, just as the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at creation, here we have the Holy Spirit who hovered over and, and created a baby and turned God the Son into a true human being. He did this. Well, you know what? If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is living in you. If you have truly trusted in Jesus Christ at that moment of first faith, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in your heart. In fact, he's the one who opened your spiritual eyes to see Christ, right? We, we call that illumination, right? We call that regeneration, like, like the idea of new breath within, someone giving you breath to breathe so that you were dead and now you're alive spiritually. Well, that was the Holy Spirit who did that in you and who lives in you. But maybe you're not feeling him right now. Okay, if you're honest, maybe you're in a dry season. Maybe God feels distant. Maybe the Holy Spirit doesn't feel like he's truly a part of your life. Maybe, if you're really honest, you're not even sure that you believe that all of this is true. But you wanna believe. You want him to be a part of your life. Well, what should you do? Well, you know, last week, Pastor Robbie, I thought, did a great job uh, introducing us to an aspect of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna talk more about the Holy Spirit in, in months to come as we're working through John. And Jesus t- tells us more about the helper, right? Our, our comforter who helps us, whom he said it would be better for his disciples for him to leave so the Holy Spirit would come and dwell within them, right? Imagine that. And we have that Holy Spirit. But one thing I really appreciate that, that Robbie really emphasized was how the Holy Spirit helped the original disciples of Jesus to remember the things, the important things that he had taught them so they could record them accurately in the Bible. How he, in other words, how he inspired them. And you know what? The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts when we read God's word. So maybe you feel distant right now and and you wish you could sense the Holy Spirit like dwelling within you. You wish you had a fire in your heart, right? You wish you had that clear direction from God. Well, let me give you a a word of advice, and this is not original, but it's very practical. Here's what you can do. Here's what I would encourage you to do. You ready? Read the Bible. I'm I'm not kidding. You might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, wait, stop. What did your week look like last week? Did you read the Bible? Did you like sit down and, and like spend time in the Word of God? Or did your phone have you distracted? 
right? Or the cares of the world, have you distracted? Were you buying stuff online or just having to keep up with social media and, and, the, and the news, right? Did that seem more relevant to you? But if you want the Spirit to guide you, let me encourage you to read the Bible. Do whatever it takes to build the discipline in your life until it becomes a delight to read His Word because here's what the Spirit does when you read the Bible. He illumines your heart. He eliminates it. He, 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 he shows up through the pages of this very old book. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Why? Is it just because we're using our, our uh, Aristotelian logic skills when we're reading the Bible and trying to put it all in our paradigms and, and, and trying to master it? No, because he actually works through his word. He certainly doesn't just bypass our brain, but he takes it straight to our heart in a, in a spiritual, powerful way. And, and, and he opens up our heart to understand how God is actually trying to lead us and speak to us through his word. And so he makes it personal and real and, and, and gives guidance and brings to mind his truth. You're gonna get a lot more guidance throughout your day later on if you spent time reading the Bible this morning. So practical advice, if you wanna hear the Holy Spirit, if you wanna feel God, read the Bible, right? And there's other stuff, you know, if there's sins that he brings to mind, and, and it's, it's confess your sins, that will certainly quench the Spirit, right? But read the Bible, Christian. And if you don't know the Lord yet, uh, but you're seeking, you're truly seeking, read, read the Bible. He's gonna speak to your heart, he's gonna show you his, his reality through his word. I, I challenge you, read the Bible. Skeptics like C.S. Lewis were converted by reading the Bible. And they went on to, to provide all kinds of amazing and rich um, uh, truths and encouragement to us um, in, our, in our lives, in our Christian lives. Read the Bible. So let's talk about the meaning here of the three words that we see um, of God with us in the biblical narrative of redemption history, how God has revealed his plan throughout the Bible. And that, that leads us to our third point, the historical perspective. This is the message. Verse 21, she will bear him a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I want us to really think about that. Those last three words that happen to be in parentheses, um, but are incredibly profound. God with us is the meaning of Christ's title, Emmanuel. Well, in Genesis chapter one, in the very beginning of the book, in Genesis chapter two, we see God creating a beautiful world and he places man and woman and woman as his ruler over it. And, and, and so Adam and Eve and their progeny were to be God's vice regents. They were to be like God on the earth and to rule over creation. And yet not only were they to do that on their own, we read that, that in this, on this planet, God created a beautiful garden called Eden that he designed to walk with man. And you know what? If, if they had never sinned, right? If Adam and Eve had never sinned, I believe that Eden, this garden of Eden, would have expanded 
to consume and cover the entire world. That was the plan. That was God's plan, right? Now, God has a, a, an amazing plan today for his kingdom to spread through the hearts of men and women around the world today, right? But Adam and Eve were in a, time, in a place of beauty and in a place of no uh, sin and no consequence of sin in which they were able to actually walk with and commune with God. And that in itself shows God's love, uh, that he would actually, in, in all the vastness of creation as we even know or imagine it, and we only have a small glimpse of an idea of how big it all is, the Lord who made all of that would choose to create image bearers on this planet called Earth to have a relationship with him. And that's what he did. That's what Adam and Eve were there for, to actually know God and to walk with him and to, to rule. But we read the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They disobeyed his command. They ate of the fruit, and all, everything, ever since then, we've known suffering and misery and the effects of it. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 how God cursed Adam and the ground. And we read in verse 17, and Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And there's just a groan in Genesis chapter 3, but even in the groan we see a glimmer of hope in God's curse of the serpent who had deceived Eve. In verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, God could have said, that's it. You, you don't want me? You want to be Lord? You want to rebel against me? Do it your way? That's it. I'm leaving. I'm withdrawing my presence from planet Earth. And he could have left us alone to just plunge deeper into our sin and suffering. And let me tell you, if it weren't for the ministering power of the Holy Spirit in this world, not only through the light of Christians, but even just in restraining evil, it would be Lord of the Flies. We can't even imagine how bad life would be. But God did not abandon planet Earth or humanity. We see in the Old Testament, he called a man named Abraham into a relationship with himself. And he made him a promise. And we need to remember that he elected Abraham because of his grace. Abraham was an idolater like everybody else. But he spoke to him and he revealed himself to him. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later, God appeared to Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 18, and he said, and in your offspring 
Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice? Now God fulfilled his promise. He made Abraham into a great nation. His chosen people of the old covenant, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, and he raised up for them a shepherd king, David, and he made a promise to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, maybe when you hear this promise, you read this promise, your mind goes to David's earthly son, Solomon, who did indeed build a temple for God, a magnificent temple. But you know, that was only a partial fulfillment that pointed forward to a future son of David, Solomon. And his progeny who came after him, the kings who came after him were not faithful to God, and, for, and the temple was destroyed. But later, when Israel's kings had turned away from God, as, as, as we were reminded by Chris this morning, the Lord sent prophets to warn them of coming doom if they would not turn back. And they constantly said, turn back. But laced within those warnings was a precious promise. God was not going to give them what they deserved forever. He wasn't going to abandon them as they were abandoning him. We read in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, the Lord say, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In in, uh, Ezekiel, we read this promise from the prophet, from God. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We could just stop right there and think about our idols today. Maybe the the idol of success or the idol of pleasure or whatever other idol you may struggle with that you put before God. And we could talk about the spirit he puts within us. We've already talked about the Holy Spirit, right? And he says that I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, how would he do this? Well, God would send a savior to rescue them from their sins. That's what saviors do, right? Savior's not just a title. A savior is somebody that, that in your moment of peril, you're staring doom and death in the face and, and, and you can't help yourself, and a Savior comes and rescues you. That's what he did. He sent a Savior to rescue us from our sins, which separate us from God. And so we read the prophet Isaiah talking about this. Great hope in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time. 
He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This backwater that Jesus came into uh, of Galilee, that was the first place that the nations would invade when they came into Israel. And, and, and they would clean house. Be, being from this area was, was no honor in their culture. But we read, the people who walked in darkness, those who were the underdogs, the downtrodden, the beaten down, they've seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. Light has shone. I told you I love Christmas lights. Light has shone. Verse six says, for unto us a child is born. This was the hope. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to hold it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this promise God made, even in his curse of the serpent, this promise that God made to Abraham and to David would be fulfilled in a coming child, a baby who was to be born as the Messiah. Well, how would he use this baby, this son, this savior to rescue his people from their sins? Well, the prophet prophesied that as well in Isaiah 53, verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so here, God is speaking through Gabriel to this troubled carpenter in a dream. And what he's saying is, this is the fulfillment of thousands of years of promises, of prophecies. This is my promised son growing in your betrothed teenage future wife. Take care of her, take care of him. He's gonna do amazing things. This is what Joseph is telling, or Gabriel is telling Joseph in his dream, that God is drawing near. God has not abandoned us, God is with us. And that's the story, that's the big narrative of the Bible. So let's talk about the personal perspective. We've talked about the human perspective and the divine perspective. The historical perspective, when we look at redemptive historical um, um, God's plan of, of redemption throughout biblical history. But let's talk about you and me now, right? How, what, how should this change your life? Verse 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joshua is such a cool name. That's, that's the Hebrew name, Yeshua. And it means Yahweh saves. That was what the name of Jesus was. God, Yahweh, the Lord, saves. Let's remember that this Christmas. Jesus didn't come just to make your, your day merry and bright, right? Uh, I think I read somewhere this week, Jesus didn't come to create a holiday 
He came to save us from our sins. And that is an incredible truth. That is the good news we call the gospel, which means good news. It is good news. And you got to understand that, that, and we know this, we know we're sinners. Even if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm not sure I buy all this. You know what? If you're honest with yourself, no matter how hard your culture may want you to explain it away, in your heart and your soul, you know you're a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And that is part of the conscience that he has created within us. And it's even the conviction of, his Holy, of the Holy Spirit on our lives. Yes, we know we're sinners. And we know that God is holy. And that means by definition, he can't just look away. He can't just tolerate it or sneeze at our sin. And yet, he loves us. And he desires to have us in his presence, to be with us. And so he sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, in our place, to save us from those sins, so that we might have an eternal relationship with God. So what do you need to do? Well, John 1, in his introduction, as as John poetically um, summarizes the whole incarnation of Jesus, in verse 12 he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What that means is, if, if you will receive Jesus in simple faith, and believe that he died on a cross for your sins and rose from the dead, and it's personal, it might not be strong, you might say it feels weak, but if it's real, he will save you. He will give you that new heart that was prophesied, that heart of flesh. He'll take away that heart of stone. He'll give you new life. The Holy Spirit will come within you, and he will be your God and you'll be his child. And John says that whoever believes in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. What does that look like? What does a relationship with God look like practically? Well, I would say, kids, look up at your dad. Dads, look look at your kids. Now, I am not a perfect dad and I know none of you men are, but maybe we wanna be, we're trying, okay? Uh, Maybe some of you had dads who were far from perfect. Maybe some of you, I I was blessed with a good dad, not a perfect dad, but a a good dad, a good father who, who loved me, who raised me, who nurtured me, who provided for me. Well, well, God is the perfect dad, the perfect father. Jesus constantly talked about God the Father as our Father in heaven, as a Father, and we are His children through faith in Christ. If, if the Holy Spirit's in your heart, if you have truly confessed that Jesus Christ is, is Savior, and you've asked Him to be yours, God is your Father. So have you trusted in Him? Do, do you know the true meaning of Christmas? It's not just about the family, It's not just about the lights, right? It's not just about the presents. It's about God with us, being with us. He did not leave us alone. In fact, he became one of us to save us from ourselves, from our sins. Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28 was, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And if you think about that, how did how did, the, how did the Jews, as they were in the wilderness, in the dangerous wilderness, know that God was with them? 
they looked up in the sky and they saw a pillar of fire. They saw a great light. How did the, how did the, how did, how did the magi, the wise men we call them, right from the east, probably from Iran today, these Persian um, astronomers who had studied, had gotten a hold of the Torah and studied it and looked up in the stars and how did God reveal himself to them? It was through starlight, and they followed that starlight, which I believe was, a, was miraculous, to the place where Jesus dwelt, in Bethlehem. How does God lead us in the New Testament? Well, you remember that pillar of fire at Pentecost? It became little tongues of fire that came and, and, and showed the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's dwelling in his people. Do you have that fire? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Are you looking to Jesus? When you see Christmas lights, if you go out to the Funiac maybe and go around the lake and look at all the cool Christmas lights, I hope you'll remember that Jesus Christ is with you. He's given you his spirit to live inside you, to, to be a, that fire inside, to warn you sometimes, to, to, through the power of, of his word, to, to, to show you the meaning and how it applies to your life, to guide you in all truth. He's given that to you. God is with us, brothers and sisters. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to call you that. You are the mighty one with power that we can't even begin to comprehend in knowledge that is too vast for us, despite our hubris um, sometimes, thinking that we know a lot. God, you, you have condescended to rescue us, to become one of us, such that we might really know you, and I I pray for everyone in this room. Lord, I I pray for those who don't know you. Maybe maybe there's someone here today who knows they don't know you. Lord, I I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of their heart and give them that fire, give them that illumination, that they might look on Jesus with a humble and and simple faith and just say, I let go. I'm tired of, of, of trying to be the master of my own ship. I've already crashed on too many rocks, and I know that doom is ahead Lord, I I pray that that they would yield to Christ and just look on him and call on him and say, save me. I believe that you are who you said you are. You are the son of God and you died for me. You're my only hope. Lord, if there's someone in this room whose heart has just grown cold, they've gotten distracted by the cares of the world, their, their own sin has gotten between them and you, I pray that today would be the day that, and even now would be the time that they would confess to you and, 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 and look back to Christ and ask your spirit to, to rise up from within and lead. Lord, I pray that, that we would be yielded to your spirit and that we would be people who delight in your gospel and in your word this Christmas. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.